Today's program is about miracles. Hello my radio friends. Welcome to another session in the series Give Me the Bible. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you especially enjoy today's program. Yes, it's wonderful that you have the interest in and willingly give up part of your day to hear more from God's Word, the Bible. It's also wonderful to know that God loves us. Don't forget that point. God hasn't forgotten us and is interested in everything we do. Do you wonder how God can keep track of so many people at the one time? Humanly speaking, we cannot know all things and be in all places at once, but that's no problem for God. God is omnipotent. That means all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent. That means can be in all places at once. We cannot measure God by human terms. God is so much greater in every aspect than we are. We are natural. He is supernatural. What we may find impossible to do is no problem for God. And that leads us into today's talk. It's about miracles. A miracle is best described as being an event with a positive outcome yet cannot be attributed to natural or human causes. You may have been in an accident where it is most likely that you should have died, yet you survived. In cases like that, some people say it was sheer luck. Others would say that divine intervention, in other words, a miracle, was responsible for their survival. It's a well-known fact that not everything that happens can be explained in terms of natural causes. Science is unable to explain why some things happen. So we must ask ourselves whether these unnatural things are the result of luck or are they the result of supernatural intervention. The short answer is that they could be either, depending on the circumstances. But some things cannot be explained by luck or coincidence. These things are miracles. The Bible records many miracles, events that would not have happened without the direct intervention of God. Many of these miracles followed earnest prayer. The Bible records several types of miracles. There are exorcisms, that's freeing a possessed person of evil spirits. There are cures, that is making a sick or even a dead person well again. And three, miracles where nature is overridden. Despite what skeptics want us to believe, miracles do happen. But before sharing one Bible miracle with you, 
It is my opinion that most of us would like and may be hoping for a miracle or two to happen in our own lives. For example, you may be sick with a serious disease and hope that God will miraculously cure you. You may be in financial difficulties and hope for a miracle where you might win lotto or someone will leave you a wealthy legacy. Your car may have broken down and you hope that it'll go again and get you safely to where you want to go. You may have a rebellious son or daughter and you hope for a miracle where they might undergo a complete and sudden change for the good. If there's something you really hope for and there seems no possibility of getting it, you're probably wishing for a miracle. I too hope for and am praying for a miracle. My wife and I want to see our children accept Jesus into their lives and long for the day when that will happen. Are you praying for a miracle? What if you don't get it? My advice to you is keep on praying. God knows your circumstances, but we must not impose our own rules on God. He knows best. If we ask for a miracle and it does not come about, we must understand that does not mean that God doesn't care, because he does care. Do you realize that even Jesus requested a miracle for himself? Yet that miracle was denied him. On the Thursday night before he was arrested, Jesus was in the olive grove praying. Some of his disciples were nearby sleeping. Jesus prayed, and we can read this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22 and verse 42. He said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He was referring, of course, to what he would have to undergo in order to be the one through whose death and resurrection human beings could be saved. That was one miracle that I'm thankful that God did not give. Otherwise, there would be no hope for anybody. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, the whole chapter tells of a miracle healing and its subsequent investigation by the religious leaders of the day. I'll put this story in my own words, but why don't you read it for yourself? It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. You see, there was this man, probably a beggar, who had never seen. He was born blind. No doubt all the people who passed by knew about him. One day, as Jesus and his disciples, plus the ever-present crowd who followed Jesus around, were passing by. The disciples asked, asked Jesus if the man was born blind because of his own sin or his parents' sins. Jesus replied that his blindness was in no way connected to anyone's sins. But he did say that the miracle about to happen to the man would display the power and goodness of God and of Jesus, who was sent to give people spiritual sight. Then Jesus did something quite remarkable. He spat on the ground, and with the dirt and saliva 
made some mud, and pasted it on the man's eyes. That done, he told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash the mud from his eyes. The pool of Siloam was a well-known kind of spring or fountain. We're not told if someone helped the man find the pool, or if he found his own way there. But when he was there, he washed the mud from his eyes, and suddenly he could see. Then he went home. Before I go on, I need to point out that when a person sees for the first time, it's different than someone who had been able to see before. A blind person has no idea of colour or what a face is actually like, or anything for that matter. Everything is unfamiliar, unknown. Normal sighted people learn what things look like over a number of years, but not the man in the story. He could both see and recognise what he was seeing. And then the doubters started wagging their tongues. Some said that he was the man they had known as the blind beggar for many years. Others said he was an imposter, someone who looked like the man they knew. When they asked him personally, he replied that he was indeed the one and same man. Then they asked him what had happened, and he told them that someone called Jesus made some mud, put it on his eyes, and when he washed the mud off, he could see. They asked where they could find this Jesus, but the man didn't know. Not long after that, the Jewish religious hierarchy got involved and required the man to give a blow-by-blow account of what had happened. They also wanted to know who the man who healed him was. Then a big discussion began. Some of the Pharisees said only a person from God could do such a miracle, and others argued that the whole business was a fake and the man had only been been pretending to be blind. So the man's parents were brought in. They testified that their son had been born blind. They were then asked how his getting sight could have happened. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders and evaded the question. They suggested the Pharisees ask their son, as he was of a mature age and was in a better position, to answer the question. The man was called into the investigative panel again and asked the same questions but with one huge difference. They were more interested in finding out who had healed him. The Pharisees tried to put words in the man's mouth that the healer, Jesus, must be a sinner. But the man doggedly stuck to his story. And then the bullying began. The Pharisees started hurling insults at the man, trying to intimidate him, to make him proclaim that Jesus was a sinner. But he would not be intimidated and turned sarcastically the insults back at them. He said, in effect, Oh, you're the religious leaders and should know everything that's happening around the place, and yet you don't seem to know anything. I'll read from verse 30. This is in John 9, remember. The man answered, Now, that's remarkable. 
You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening, opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, Ah, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Of course, the Jewish leader's argument was totally illogical. At birth, a baby is innocent. It has never sinned. So how could it be steeped in sin, as they said? Later on, after hearing what happened, Jesus found the man and identified himself. On, lo on learning who Jesus, the Son of God, was, he worshipped him. He worshipped him not because of the miracle that had happened, but he recognised that he was in the presence of God. There are many interesting issues in regard to this story, but there is one that needs pointing out. It is summed up in this gem of wisdom. There are none so blind, so blind as he who cannot but will not see. We'll come back to this near the end of the program. You know, there are medical miracles, healing miracles, but probably the greatest miracle of all is what happens to someone who is living a life of sin and corruption. But when Jesus comes into their lives, they become completely changed, changed from being rebellious, selfish, a social parasite, to become a lovely, virtuous Christian. There are many books and many stories written about such people and of the miraculous changes that have taken place. Their stories are an inspiration to read, and one of these is about a murderer called Harry Orchard. And I'll share with you the story of Harry Orchard after a break. We'll have some music now and we'll come back and hear what happened to Harry Orchard. saying before the break, one of the very greatest miracles is a changed life of a person who gives their heart to Jesus and instead of being an evil person filled with selfish ambition and so on, become a lovely, nice, outward person. I'm going to tell you the story of Harry Orchard. Harry Orchard began life as Albert Horsley. He was born on March 18, 1866, on a farm near Toronto in Canada. Albert's father was a very strict man, but his mother, a Quaker, 
faithfully conducted family worships and sent her children to church each Sunday. Unfortunately, Albert was a rebellious child and he was never converted. In about 1888, when he was 22, Albert married Florence Fraser. The couple started the cheese business and eventually had a daughter who was named Olive. But due to Albert's gambling habit, the business soon failed. Then, in 1896, he ran off with a married woman to British Columbia. The woman left him and soon returned home, and Albert began moving from place to place, working jobs in British Columbia and in various states in the United States of America. In time, he became involved with the Western Federation of Miners, eventually becoming the Miners' Union Hired Hitman. Albert used various names, but in 1896, he became known as Harry Orchard. Maybe he should have been called Bomber Orchard. In 1899, Orchard participated in blowing up some of the competitors' um, mining um, sheds and properties, and in 1904 he helped bomb the train depot in Independence in Colorado. This second bombing killed at least 13 men and badly injured 24 others. Estimates of the total number of people Orchard murdered range from 17 through to 26. He also unsuccessfully attempted to kill the governor of Colorado, two Colorado Supreme Court judges, an adjutant general of Colorado and the president of another mining company, all at the directions of the top officers in the miners' union. In addition to these crimes, Orchard became a bigamist in 1903 when he married a widow with three children. In late 1905, Orchard undertook another assignment for the officers of the Western Federation of Miners, the killing of Frank Stunenberg, the 44-year-old former governor of Idaho who had served from 1897 to 1901. The Stunenbergs lived in Caldwell, Idaho. During the 1899 miners' strike in the Coeur region of the state, Governor Stunenberg, a Democrat who had been elected with the support of the miners' unions, requested President William McKinley, a Republican, to send in federal troops to restore order. The leaders of the miners' union never forgot or ever forgave Stunenberg. On at least three occasions, Orchard tried unsuccessfully to murder the former governor, but each time it went wrong. But on Saturday night, December 30, 1905, everything changed. Orchard rigged up a bomb that exploded when Stunenberg opened the gate to his home. The mortally injured man died within 20 minutes. Two days later, on January 1st, 1906, Orchard was arrested for the murder. In his prison cell, 
sleep eluded Orchard. He felt certain that the powerful Western Federation of Miners would back him up in court and succeed in getting him off. But the guilt, yes, the guilt of his past deeds began to haunt him. He questioned whether God could forgive him for the horrible things he had done. Orchard was moved to the state penitentiary in Boise, where Detective James McParland interviewed him. Orchard eventually opened up to McParland, who assured him that according to the Bible, God most certainly forgives sinners. Orchard later agreed to tell the detective his entire story. Shortly after making his full confession, Orchard received a gift of a Bible and soon began studying it. His thoughts about life began to change. He realized that God's grace was much greater than he had ever imagined, and it wasn't very long before Harry Orchard, the murderer, despite his sinful past, gave his heart to the Lord. The miracle came about through reading the Word of God. Orchard had a new focus in life, to serve God and to obey Him. In a short space of time, Harry Orchard the killer became Harry Orchard the converted Christian. Now, Orchard became the star witness in two court cases that the state of Idaho brought against Bill Hayward, secretary of the Western Miners Federation, and a second person who also was part of the union's inner circle. For eight days during the first of the two trials, defence attorneys grilled Orchard. As many newspapers reported, however, the attorneys failed to break Orchard's story, including his claim that he had become a Christian. No promise of leniency was given Orchard for testifying for the prosecution. Rather, it was Orchard's hope that somehow the terrible trail of violence that for years had been part of the labour management struggle in the mines could be broken. Knowing of others who were on the Federation's assassinations hit list, Orchard hoped that his testifying would prevent their murders. And, as Orchard had assumed would happen, both union leaders were acquitted. But by telling the truth, he had done his best to spare other lives while also clearing his own conscience before God. In March 1908, it was Orchard's turn in court, but obviously the Labour Union would no longer be there to defend him. Despite his initial not guilty plea, he now knew that as a Christian he could no longer plead not guilty. Consequently, he changed his plea to guilty. He was then sentenced to die by hanging for the murder of former Governor Frank Stunenberg. His lawyer applied for clemency, and Orchard's death sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. During the years he was serving his life sentence, Orchard occasionally corresponded with his wife in Canada. She never married. He organised and operated a chicken and turkey-raising business for the penitentiary, or the jail as we would say here in Australia, 
He was allowed to live outside the walls of the prison for a number of years in his own small self-built cabin. And he made and sold furniture, combs and shoes. He also studied his Bible and other religious literature and shared his faith with others. The prison authorities recognised that Harry Orchard was a changed man. At the time of Orchard's death, on April 13, 1954, he was the longest-serving prisoner in the Idaho State Penitentiary, some 46 years altogether. The story of Harry Orchard raises many questions, but also teaches important lessons. First, God does not always overrule sinful plans. We must recognise that we live in a sinful world. Only when Christ returns and all wrongs are finally made right will we learn why God did not prevent Orchard from carrying out his murderous intentions against Stunenberg and others. Orchard had the same question. I have often wondered, he wrote, why my poor life was spared when I had sent so many to an untimely death. The exploitation of the miners by the mine owners resulted in deaths on both sides of the dispute, but the killing and destruction had to be stopped. When Orchard became a converted Christian, his confession is credited with saving the lives of many already marked to be assassinated, plus an unknown number of others who would have been innocent victims. As tragic as the death of former Governor Stunenberg was, undoubtedly it, along with Orchard's full confession, resulted in the saving of many other lives. Although God does not undo the results of our sins, he does attempt to salvage something positive from the awful situations we sinners cause. Second, when it comes to saving a soul, there is nothing that can compare to the love and forgiveness of a genuine Christian. And last, God is willing to forgive us for whatever we've done, no matter how horrendous the actions. While we are right to thank and praise God for Orchard's radical life transformation, we must also acknowledge that during his early years his demonic actions had a terrible impact on many people, including the wives and children of the murdered men. Although God is willing and eager to forgive us, the aftermath of our sinful actions may impact future generations for many years to come. It is indeed a special miracle where someone whose life is devoted to antisocial behaviour, whose interests were only selfish, destructive, corrupting and committed to evil, can change to become a selfless, law-abiding, helpful Christian believer. Normally, people do not change like that. There is transforming power in the Word of God. I mentioned earlier scepticism about miracles 
and about whether they were real or not. In the story of the miracle of the man who had been born blind from birth, the very people who should have recognized that God was amongst them and performed this fantastic miracle were so set in their ways that they chose not to believe. They would not believe. The Bible does not question the existence of miracles. They are real and are part of the activities of a supernatural being, God. You know, <clears throat> when the Twin Towers in New York fell, there were many people killed, although many others escaped death or injury. In the months following that disaster, churches in New York were packed with people people giving thanks for their miraculous escape from death. They went to church because they felt God had performed a miracle for them and so they felt close to him and wanted to honour him. But what is the situation now? Most of those once packed churches have gone back to the pre-disaster congregations. The once grateful worshippers have gone gone back to their old ways. They have abandoned God, and that's sad. Have you felt that God has done a miracle for you? If so, has your response been like that of the New Yorkers I just mentioned? At first grateful, and then completely putting God out of their lives? I hope not. I hope that you will honour God in your life always. Unlike the New Yorkers who abandon him, God does not abandon us. When you are faced with the evidence of a loving God who wants to pour out his blessings on you, what will you do? Will you, like the Jewish leaders, choose not to believe in him because he doesn't fit into your worldview, your ideology? Will you be like a match, flaring up with a lot of enthusiasm for a while? and then fizzling out. Only you can answer these questions. But I hope as you see and learn about the existence of God and what he has done for you, that you will commit your life to him. And don't be afraid to ask God for a miracle. He is not deaf. He loves you and wants you in his kingdom and is ready to give you what you need. I would have loved to have shared much more with you on the subject of miracles, but we must stop. But I look forward to your company next time when we will deal with the subject, the most significant sentence ever spoken. Don't miss it. And in the meantime, I wish you peace and joy and God's blessings. <laughs> 